sometimes you need to hit the pause button as a clinician um, and a researcher and say, hang on, this is what my underlying assumption is. We want to be evidence-based practitioners, but in fact, this is just how we should practice. Ethics is every part of every clinical decision that we make. And what it is that we do is we make lives better. Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. Hello, my name is Nathan cornish Raley, and I'm the Professional Support Advisor at Speech Pathology Australia. And with me today to talk about managing difficult conversations is Dr. Jennifer Arnold-Levy. She is a senior learning and development con consultant and executive coach specializing in facilitating the development of interpersonal and personal effectiveness needed for effective leadership. So thank you for joining us today, uh, Dr. Arnold-Levy. So I know that one of the ways that you help people to uh, have effective communication is helping them understand and manage difficult conversations. Now, in your experience, what types of conversations do people find difficult? Um, so, basically, and I read this somewhere, you know, someone, they talked about what, what makes a difficult conversation and they talked about, well, anything that you find hard to talk about. And it was like, well, dog, but, you know, what does that mean? And when you ask, um, you know, people in training programs such as what they find difficult, there's a, a I think there's sort of, I mean, there's probably more, but sort of two major types of conversations. You know, one is what one recent participant uh, in the training program called the calling out conversations, mm. you know, where you have to or you want to talk to someone about something, you know, something that they're doing um, that you don't want them to do anymore, you know, that is problematic, that you'd like them to change, you know, that's causing, you know, some sort of adverse impact. Um or, or, or something to that um, you want you want to change a process or you know do something differently and you want to ask for a change in behaviour with res or you know with respect to that um, and so effectively anything that potentially um, can make the other person feel wrong in some respect. So somehow less than, somehow, you know, there, there's something that they're doing that really isn't okay, that makes the other person not okay. And so there's that risk that they then will react to that because they're feeling uncomfortable. Um, and I think the other, the other sort of category of conversations, another major one, is around expressing vulnerability. So anything that might signal to the other person that, you know, maybe, maybe you're struggling, you know, like, you know, if you're feeling anxious about something, you know, and sharing that with someone or, uh, you know, um, you, yeah, you, you, you want to, you might even want a promotion, you know, you want, you've got other needs, you, there's some dissatisfaction there or something. Um, and there's that risk that the other person might view you negatively. They might judge you in some way. Um, and you feel you're the one that then feels wrong or sort of less than, yeah. So these are the two areas that I reckon, you know, I think are the most difficult. Mm, yeah. Okay. So for managers, you know, having those performance conversations, um, that sort of thing, um, are you know a key one as well. Um, so yeah. 
Okay. Um, yeah, so you've mentioned that uh, conversation surrounding somebody else's potential vulnerability or our own vulnerability are difficult conversations to have. Uh, I guess, what is it about those conversations that makes them so difficult? I mean, is there, are there specific emotions or, or physiological responses or, or perceptions to risk that make us want to avoid those conversations? Absolutely, totally, completely. So um, the, um, the Harvard Negotiation Project, which um, there's, uh, they're affiliated with the Harvard Law School, um, or that project's affiliated with the Harvard Law School, they've written a couple of books. Um, you may be familiar with one, you know, is a classic one, Getting to Yes. Um, and the other one is around, it actually is called Difficult Conversations. And in the Difficult Conversations text, they refer specifically to what they call the identity conversation. So it is, once again, it's that anything, you know, what's at stake in these conversations is our identity. You know, am I competent? Am I good? Am I reliable? Am I worthy? Yeah. And the thing is that anything um, that, um, that threatens that sense of identity puts us as human beings into a threat state. So that it activates basically our fight flight response because as human beings, we have a primal need to belong. Um, we needed that, we, we needed to belong to ensure survival of the species. Because if you think about it in, in caveman days or tribal days, if you're left on your own, you know, we needed the protection of the tribe. If we were left on our own on the prairies, we wouldn't live long. So if there's any threat at all, any suggestion that we are somehow not valuable enough, um, we're not competent, we're not, you know, able or what have you, um, then we just instinctively, um, our bodies will react as if someone's just put a knife to our throat. So our body, social neuroscience tells us that our body um, responds, when we our social needs are threatened, because we, as human beings, we have these social needs. When our social needs are threatened, our body responds in exactly the same way as it would to a physical threat. Um, and we all know, um, you know, when we're familiar with the fight-flight response, um, that when that gets activated, that's when we literally become a bit stupid. Um, they actually estimate that when we're under stress um, and we're in this response then, or experiencing this response, our cognitive function can literally drop by up to 30%. So what tends to happen, you know, everyone knows that, you know, the, the physiology, as you said, of the stress response, where basically our amygdala fires um, and, you know, sets off our, you know, our adrenal glands to you know let us you know release adrenaline and cortisol you know to ready us to you know give us the strength and speed to fight the lion or run away well those sorts of responses are not particularly useful in a conversation isn't it and and we'll find ourselves you know when we're triggered in a conversation when those emotions um when that response is triggered, which is associated with an emotional response, you know, fear, anxiety, frustration, all those less pleasant emotions. Um, you know, you can't take emotions out of this. Um, they play a huge role. So once we're in that state, then literally 
our, um, our cognitive function becomes hijacked, as Daniel Goleman talks about in his book, Emotional Intelligence. Um, our cognitive function becomes hijacked by the amygdala and, and that adrenal, that stress response. Um, and literally our frontal lobes, which, you know, are responsible, as we know, for executive functions, problem solving, reasoning, creativity, being able to take different perspectives, you know, maintaining attention, you know, listening, focus, presence, all the things that we need, you know, to have a, an adult conversation um, and work through things calmly. All of that just goes offline, literally, because the, the brain gets robbed of glucose. Um, and so, you know, that, that's what, as human beings, we're having to, to manage is this primal animal response, which has kept us safe. You know, there, you know there's nothing wrong with it. We need it. Um, but when it comes to relating to people and having conversations in the workplace and, you know, calm conversations and, you know, cooperative engagement... Um, you know, when we when these protective behaviours sort of come to the fore, you know, it can all fall apart and then we can end up, you know, with the conversation spiralling out of control and and that's, of course, what we fear with these sorts of conversations, yeah. Does understanding that physiological response play a role or can that help us to be able to overcome it? Or I guess what's the relationship between understanding that, that fight or flight response and and being able to... Um, I guess overcome it and, and uh, you know, have a more pleasant experience or, or better performance in those situations. Yeah. Um, look, the, the, the most important thing, yeah, absolutely, it's essential. If we understand that um, we have this response uh, and that's what we're dealing with, um, that we're going to have that response, that it's normal, um, I think it helps us, um, first of all, accept it in ourselves. It, it helps us also start to monitor it. We start to notice it. Um, if, we're not, um, if we're not aware of something, we can't manage it, right? So the first step is around understanding, yes, where this response exists, um, our response is normal. It's not some weakness, you know, in, in any one of us. It's actually a natural um, response um, that we need. Uh, so then to understand when we're caught in it um, so that we can actually then take action to manage it, to then keep it calm, you know, to keep us, you know, keep our frontal lobes basically online so that we can stay... Um, in curiosity and we can stay present to the other person and actually listen and hear what they're going to say and, and, and check, you know, have we really understood correctly and, and all of those things we need to do to manage the response. Um, so absolutely, I think it's, it's critical um, and, uh, and, and learning skills to actually manage that response. And I like the term you use, remaining in curiosity with the other person and remaining engaged with them. Um, and obviously, navigating difficult conversations is a learned skill. Um, and there's certainly more involved than just recognizing the response. Um, so, I, you know, I imagine there's a, a 
variety of management approaches that can be learned over time. But for someone listening to this podcast, um, what are one or two key strategies that they can begin working on right now? I think that, um, especially the, I was thinking about this, you know, that you know, it probably depends on the individual um, in terms of their own skill level as to what's going to be most valuable for them, right? So, uh, you know, all the listeners will be at all sort of varying, you know, degrees of capability with respect to this. Um, so I think in answering that question, I think if I start just at the beginning, you know, the building block um, of it all um, is around the emotional self-management piece. So our building, you know, that, that aspect of, our, of emotional intelligence um, where... Um, we really practice and become very well practiced at uh, monitoring online, you know, constantly during the day, regular, well, regularly um, during the day, um, our mood state and our emotional response, um, and um, practicing um, skills and practices that um, help that um, stay managed. So. So, and this is where, you know, mindfulness practices, meditation practices, et cetera, calming practices um, become, you know, in, in the corporate world, it's been talked about a lot now, isn't it, in, in um, the Western world, um, because it, it's a disciplined practice where you literally are, you know, re you have the opportunity to um, retrain um, or the, the limbic system and reduce reactivity with the amygdala, uh, which is, you know, um, one of the, the, the uh, potential benefits of that sort of practice. So I'd, I'd say that, but, you know, things like running, making sure that, you know, you, you're, you're, you know, getting enough sleep and all those sorts of resilience building strategies to manage your own energy so you can stay present um, and, and you've got better control in, in the moment. So that, I'd probably, that'd be one thing. And the second thing I'd say is around don't try to wing these conversations. You know, you've got to prepare for them. You've got to really think through, you know, well, what do you really feel? What do you really, you know, believe about the other person or about the situation? And specifically also, what is it you really want? And why do you want it? And, and what's the common goal with the other person? You know, what do you share with the other person? Because that becomes, you know, when you go into a conversation, it's really, um, that becomes key to keeping the conversation on track, coming back to that shared goal um, and clarifying that sense of, you know, purpose and what it means for both parties concerned. Um, to um, you know, to, to resolve or to talk through or what have you, um, with respect to the conversation. I could keep going, but I know we have to stop. Before <laughs> I'd say, but all right, Dr. Jennifer Arnold Levy, thank you for spending some time with us today. My pleasure. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening, and bye for now.